calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Infected, book one of the Infected Trilogy. Written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist, Scott Sigler. Performed by the author. Infected is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash infected. Chapter 5. Architecture. The shells grew in size and durability. Still too small to see with the naked eye, it wouldn't be long before they could not be missed. The same tiny, cell-like devices that built the shells used the available material to start making what went under the shells, a framework that would comprise a new organism, a larger organism, a growing organism. The seedlings built their third and final free-moving microstructure where there had been readers to gather the DNA blueprints and builders to make the shell in the framework, now came the herders. The herders washed out into the host's body, seeking very specific kinds of cells, stem cells. The DNA blueprints showed that these were what the seedlings needed. The herders found these stem cells, then cut them free and dragged them back to the growing framework. First, the herders cemented the stem cells to the framework with simple chemical bonds. Then the reader balls moved in. The sawtooth jaws sliced into the stem cell, but gently this time. Microfilaments bare nanometers across slid into the stem cell DNA, slid in, and started making changes. Because the readers weren't just there to read, they were also there to write. The stem cells were not conscious. They had no idea they had just been enslaved. They did what they always do, grow new cells. The new cells they produced were only slightly different from those they had been originally designed to build. Those new cells spread out through the growing framework, adding muscle and other more specialized tissues. What arrived as a microscopic seed had hijacked the host's body and used the built-in biological processes to create something foreign, in a way far more insidious than even a virus. And while the seedlings had no concept of time, their mission would be complete in just a few short days. Chapter 6. The Daily Grind Perry walked into American Computer Solutions, ACS to those in the industry, at 7 minutes to 9. He jogged through the building, catching and throwing hellos as he headed for his cubicle. Sliding into his chair, he tossed his briefcase on the gray desktop 
and started his computer. It chimed, seemingly in happiness at escaping the purgatory of off, and started through its RAM checks and warm-up cycles. Perry glanced at the wall clock, which was placed high enough that all could see it from their cubicles. It read 8.55. He'd already be working away when the clock struck nine. Thought I was going to get you today, said a woman's voice behind his back. He didn't bother to turn around as he opened the briefcase and pulled out the unorganized wad of paper. Close but no cigar, boss, Perry said, smiling a little at the daily joke. Maybe next time. Samir Cancel from Pullman called, the woman said. They're having network trouble again. Call him first thing. Yes, ma'am. Sandy Rodriguez left Perry to do his work. Most of ACS's computer support staff arrived a few minutes late, but Perry was always on time. Sandy rarely addressed the staff's tardiness problem. Everyone knew she didn't really care if people were a little late, as long as they didn't abuse that privilege and they got their work done. She didn't care, and yet Perry was always on time. She'd given him a chance when he had no job, no references, and an assault conviction on his record. No, not just an assault. An assault conviction on his former boss. After that incident, he was sure nobody would ever hire him for white-collar work again. But his college roomie Bill Miller had put in a good word at ACS, and Sandy had given Perry a shot. When she hired him, he swore to himself that he'd never let her down in any way. That included being early every day. As his father used to say, there's no substitute for hard work. He pushed the sudden and unwelcome thought of his father from his mind. He didn't want to start the day in a bad mood. A full 25 minutes later, Perry heard the distinctive sounds of Bill Miller sliding into the adjoining cubicle. Bill was late as usual, and also as usual, he didn't give a damn. Morning, sissy girl, Bill said his ever-present monotone drifting over the five-foot cubicle walls. Did him sleep well? You know, Bill, I'm a little bit past the I drank more than you stage. I'd like to think you'll grow up one of these days. Yeah, you're probably right. Although I did drink more than you, girly man. Perry started to reply, but a stabbing itch on his right collarbone stole his voice and replaced it with a slight gasp of surprise. He dug his fingers through the sweatshirt, scratching at the skin underneath. Maybe he was allergic to something. Maybe a spider had crawled into his bed last night and tried to bite its way out. He scratched harder, intent on blasting the itch into compliance. The irritation on his forearm acted up again, and he switched his focus to that spot. Fleas? Bill's voice came from above, unhampered by the divider walls. Perry looked up. Bill's upper body leaned over the fabric panel wall that separated the cubicles, his head just inches from the ceiling. He attained this height by a frequent practice of standing on his desk. Bill, as always, looked immaculate despite the fact he'd left the bar at the same time as Perry, which meant he couldn't have had much more than four hours sleep. With his bright blue eyes, perfectly trimmed brown hair, and a clean-shaven baby face free of even the tiniest blemish, Bill looked like a model for teenage zit cream. It's just a little bug bite is all. Bill retreated back behind the divider wall. Perry stopped scratching, although the skin still itched, and called up the Pullman file on his computer. As he did, he launched his instant messenger program. Even though people were only a few cubes away, instant messaging often proved to be the preferred method of communication within the office, especially for communication with Bill in the next cube 
who usually had plenty to say that he didn't want others in the office to overhear. The IMs let them share sophomoric humor that helped pass the day. He started off the daily ritual with a message to Bill's instant message handle, Sticky Fingers Whitey. From Bleed Maze and Blue. Hey, are we doing Monday Night Football tonight? From Sticky Fingers Whitey. Does the Pope wear women's underwear? From Bleed Maze and Blue. I thought the phrase was, does the Pope wear a funny hat? From Sticky Fingers Whitey. He already wears a big dress, although my sources say he doesn't deserve to wear white, if you know what I mean. Smiley face. Perry snorted back a laugh. He knew he looked like an idiot when he did that. Big shoulders bouncing, head down, hand over his mouth to hide laughter. From Bleed Maze and Blue. LOL. Cut it out. I just got here. I don't want Sandy to think I'm watching YouTube clips again. From Sticky Fingers Whitey. How about you watch Pope's Gone Wild on your own time, mister? You sick, sick man. Perry laughed, out loud this time. He'd known Bill for... God, was it almost ten years already? Perry's freshman year in college had been a tough one. A time when his violent tendencies ran roughshod and unchecked. He'd landed at the University of Michigan courtesy of a full-ride football scholarship. At first, they'd roomed him with other football players. But Perry always viewed them as competition, even if they didn't play the same position. A fight invariably ensued. After his third altercation, the coaches were ready to yank his scholarship. That crap may float at other schools, like Ohio State, they told him, but not at the University of Michigan. The last thing they wanted, however, was to lose him. They hadn't recruited him and given him a full-ride scholarship for nothing. The coaching staff wanted his ferocity on the field. When Bill heard of the situation, he volunteered to room with Perry. Bill was the nephew of one of the assistant coaches. He and Perry met during freshman orientation, and the two had hit it off quite well. Perry remembered that the only times he smiled during those first few months were when he was around Bill's irrepressible humor. Everyone thought Bill was crazy. Why would a 5'8", 150-pound English major volunteer to room with a 6'5", 240-pound linebacker who benched 480 and had already beaten the holy hell out of three roommates, all of whom were Division I football players? But to everyone's surprise, it worked out perfectly. Bill seemed to have a talent for laughter, laughter that soothed the savage beast. Bill saved not only Perry's athletic career, but his collegiate one as well. Perry had never forgotten that. Ten years he'd known Bill, and in all that time, he'd never heard the man give a straight answer about anything that wasn't related to work. Music drifted over from Bill's cube, an ancient Sonny and Cher ditty, to which Bill cleverly sang, I got scabies, babe, instead of the original lyrics. The IM alert chimed again. From Sticky Fingers Whitey. You think Green Bay is going to give the Niners a good game tonight? Perry didn't type in an answer. Didn't really even see the question. His face scrunched into a mask of intense concentration that one might mistake for pain. He fought against the urge to scratch yet again, except this time it was far worse than before and in a far worse place. He kept his hands frozen on the keyboard using all his athletic discipline not to scratch furiously at his left testicle. You're such a baby, baby, the little boy said. Baby Missy the crybaby. Shut up, Tommy. Missy Hester poked at the weird blue thing sticking out of the little red spot on her right wrist. It was like a tiny thread, 
She pulled at it, but the skin just lifted up with it, and it hurt. She pulled at it again. I don't shut up, I grow up, her brother said, and when I look at you, I throw up. He was wearing his Lone Ranger cowboy hat and mask again. She wanted to wear it too, but he got mad if she took it. She didn't even know who the Lone Ranger was. She wasn't even sure if Tommy knew. Dad had bought the outfit for Tommy last time he picked him up for a weekend. Tommy had barely taken off the hat, the mask, and the cap gun belt since he got him. Pretty much, only when he went to school or when they sat down to dinner and Mom ordered him to take it off. Leave me alone, Tommy. It hurts. Oh, shut up, you baby, Tommy said. That doesn't hurt. It's just a little dot. You need to be tougher. You want to see something that hurts? Look at this. Tommy yanked at the left leg of his jeans. The jeans were wet and dirty at the bottom. Bits of slushy snow fell onto the floor. He pulled up the leg to reveal a huge scab that covered most of his knee. Oh, that's yucky, Missy said. I crashed my bike jumping over that curb out front, smashed my knee on the sidewalk. Did you show Mom? No, I didn't show Mom. It's just a scab. I tore my other jeans when I crashed. I hid them under the bed, so don't tell Mom. I didn't even cry. I didn't show Mom, and look how much bigger it is than your little owie. But Tommy, it's itchy, and it hurts. It doesn't hurt. You're just being stupid. I'm not stupid. You're stupid. Your stupid Lone Ranger mask is stupid. Tommy reached out with his forefinger and thumb in a circle, then flicked the red spot. Dull pain flashed through her hand. Tommy, ouch! The tears started pouring from her eyes. Why was he so mean? Don't say my mask is stupid, partner. You're just mad because you're so ugly. I am not ugly! Mom's entrance ended the children's argument. Tommy! They both jerked upright, eyes wide and mouths slightly open. They weren't supposed to call each other names, and they knew it. Tommy Hester, you do not call your sister ugly. Yes, ma'am, Tommy said as he hung his head. Missy couldn't see his eyes under the brim of the black hat. And you, Missy Hester, you do not call your brother stupid. You understand me? Missy nodded and wiped away tears. All right, Mom said, her sharp voice softening. She knelt down on one knee. Now what's going on with your hand? Show me. Missy held out her right hand. Mom took it gently, her warm hand soft on Missy's skin. Mom looked at the hand for a few seconds, turning it. Missy pointed to the blue fiber on her wrist. Mom pulled Missy's hand close to her eye. That is weird, she said. I told her she was being a baby, Mom. Tommy, you be quiet. Just because you're so tough doesn't mean other people don't feel pain. I swear, you're just like your father. Missy looked at her brother, who was smiling. Sometimes Mom meant to be mean when she said Tommy was like Dad, but Tommy always loved it. You're right, Mom, Tommy said. I'm sorry, little lady. It's okay, Missy said. Mom turned the hand and looked even closer, her eye only an inch from Missy's spot. Well, this is... well, it's blue. Tommy, does this look blue to you? Yes, ma'am, it sure does. Huh. Well, Missy, you get your coat on. We're going to go to the doctor. The doctor? But I don't want to go to the doctor. Mom stood up. You're going, and I don't want to hear another word. Get your coat on. Tommy, can you go over to the Andersons for a little while? 
I'll come pick you up when we get back. Yes, ma'am. Tommy started running out of the room. Hold on, Mom said. She pointed to a red down jacket hanging from a hook next to the door. Tommy, you get your coat on. Aw, Mom, I don't need a coat. I was just outside and it's fine. It's 30 degrees outside, Mom said. You don't think it's cold? Tommy shrugged. I swear, you and your father cut from the same cloth. Tommy smiled again. Well, your tough guy father isn't here and I am, so you wear your coat, you understand? Yes, ma'am, Tommy said. He grabbed the coat and shrugged it on as he ran out of the room. Mom turned to Missy. You get your coat on too, honey. Everything will be fine. It's just a little strange. I want the doctor to take a peek, okay? Missy nodded and grabbed her coat from the hook on the wall. She hated the doctor and hoped they wouldn't be there long. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Chapter 7. The Big Snafu Dew Phillips slumped into the plastic chair next to the payphone. After this ordeal, even a young man would have felt like a week-old dog turd, and at 56, Dew's youth was far behind him. His wrinkled suit stank of sweat and smoke. Thick smoke. Black smoke. The kind that only comes from a house fire. The odor seemed alien in the clean, dirt-free confines of the hospital. Somewhere in his head, he knew that he should feel grateful that he was in the waiting room at the Toledo Hospital and not in the airtight quarantine chamber at the CDC in Cincinnati. But he just couldn't find the energy to count his blessings. Greasy soot streaked the left side of his weathered, heavily lined face. 
His bald head also showed streaks, as if flames had danced precariously near his mottled scalp. The small patch of red hair, which ran from ear to ear around the back of his head, had escaped the smoke stain. He looked weak and exhausted, as if he might teeter off the chair at any second. Dew always carried two cell phones. One was thin and normal. He used that for most communication. The other was bulky and metallic, painted in a flat black finish. It was loaded with the latest encrypting equipment, none of which Dew understood or gave a rat's ass about. He pulled out the big cell phone and called Murray's number. Good afternoon. Murray Stapleton's office. Get Murray. The phone clicked once, and he was on hold. The Rolling Stones played satisfaction through the tinny connection. Jesus, Dew thought. Even super-secret, secure lines at fucking Muzak. Murray Longworth's authoritative voice came on the line, cutting off Mick in mid-breath. What's the situation, Dew? It's a big snafu, sir. The military parlance acronym stood for Situation Normal All Fucked Up. He leaned his forehead on the pastel blue wall. Looking down, he noticed for the first time that the soles of his shoes had melted, then cooled all misshapen and embedded with bits of gravel and broken glass. Mal Johnson's hurt. How bad? The docs say it's touch and go. Shit. Yep, it doesn't look good. Murray waited, perhaps only long enough to give the illusion that Malcolm's life was more important than the mission. Then he continued. Did you catch him? No, there was a fire. Remains? Here at the hospital, waiting for your girl. Condition? Somewhere between medium and well done. I think she's got something to work with, if that's what you mean. Murray paused a moment. His silence seemed weighted and heavy. You want to stay with him, or should I have some boys watch over him? You couldn't drag me away with a team of mules tied to my balls, sir. I figured as much. I assumed the area was checked and sterilized? As in three alarms sterilized. Good. Margaret's on the way. Give her whatever help she needs. I'll get there when I can. You can give me a full report then. Yes, sir. Dew hung up and flopped back into the chair. Malcolm Johnson, his partner of seven years, was in critical condition. Third-degree burns covered much of Mal's body. The hatchet wound in his gut wasn't helping things. Dew had ample experience with horribly wounded men. He wouldn't take two-to-one odds for Malcolm's survival. Dew had seen some crazy shit in his day, more than most. First in Nam, then with almost three decades of service to the agency but he'd never seen anything like Martin Brubaker. Those eyes, eyes that swam with madness, drowned in it. Martin Brubaker, legless, covered in fire like some Hollywood stuntman, swinging that hatchet at Malcolm. Dew let his head fall into his hands. If only he'd reacted faster, if only he'd been just one second faster and stopped Mal from trying to put out the fire on Brubaker. Dew should have known what was coming. Blaine Tannerive, Charlotte Wilson, Gary Leland, all those cases had ended in violence and murder. Why had he thought Brubaker would be any different? But who would have expected the crazy fuck to set his whole house on fire? Dew had one more call to make. Malcolm's wife. He wondered if Malcolm would still be alive by the time Shamika flew in from D.C. He doubted it. He doubted it very much.
Chapter 8. Would you look at that? At lunchtime, Perry sat in the bathroom stall, pants around his ankles, 49er sweatshirt in a pile on the tile floor. On top of his left forearm, atop his left thigh, and on his right shin were small, red rashes about the size of a number two pencil eraser. Three other spots itched just as maddeningly. His fingers told him that similar rashes perched on his right collarbone, on his spine, just below his shoulder blades, and on his right ass cheek. He also had one on his left testicle. That one he tried not to think about. Their itching came and went, sometimes fading in and out like a slowly turned volume knob, other times arriving with full-bore force like hitting the power button on a maxed-out stereo. Definitely spider bites, he figured. Maybe a centipede. He'd heard they had nasty venom. What amazed him was how he'd slept through such an attack. Whatever it was that had bitten him, it must have hit just before he awoke. That would explain why he saw no marks when he prepared for work. The poison had just entered his system, and his body was slow to react. They itched and were a touch disconcerting, but all in all it was no big deal. Just a few bug bites. He'd simply have to discipline himself not to scratch, and sooner or later they'd go away. If he left them alone, they'd probably disappear. Trouble was, he had an awful time of leaving skin blemishes alone, whether they be scabs, zits, blisters, or anything else, but his bad habit of picking at such blemishes wouldn't help matters. He'd simply have to focus, have to play through the pain, as his high school football coach used to say. Perry stood, buttoned his pants, and put his sweatshirt back on. He took a deep breath and tried to clear his mind. It's just a test of will, Perry thought. A test of discipline. That's all. You've got to have discipline. He left the bathroom and headed back to his desk, ready to work hard and earn his pay. Chapter 9. Paying the Cost to Be the Boss Murray Longworth looked over the list of personnel who had enough security clearance to join Project Tangram. It was a short list. Malcolm Johnson was down for the count. That made Dew a solo operative, which is what Murray had wanted in the first place. But Dew had insisted on bringing in Johnson. Murray shook his head. That decision would fuck with Dew, probably for the rest of his life. Casualties, unfortunately, were the cost of doing business. You sent flowers to the funeral. You moved on. Murray understood that. Dew, he never did. Dew Phillips made shit personal. That was why Murray was the number two man in the CIA, and Dew Phillips was still a shit-stomping grunt. A grunt in a nice suit, sure, but a grunt nonetheless. That was also why five presidents had called on Murray to get things done. Secret things. Unsavory things. Things that would never make the history books, but had to get done anyway. And this time, the President of the United States of America had asked Murray to find out what the hell was turning normal Americans into crazed murderers. Murray, from the CIA, mind you, and not the FBI, who should have handled a domestic issue. It was, in fact, illegal for the CIA to run the SOP on U.S. soil, but the President wanted Murray to handle it. If it was terrorism it might require some creative tactics. Tactics that just might be a smidgen outside the law. 
five victims to date in a plague that would throw the country into an unparalleled panic, and he had precious little information. So far, he'd done a masterful job of keeping the lid on things. He had more than a hundred people at his immediate disposal, yet fewer than ten knew what was actually going on. Not even the Joint Chiefs had the whole story. When Margaret Montoya had contacted the CIA with that first strange report, the call eventually landed with Murray. She wasn't just some crank caller or some science-type doom and gloomer preaching about yet another pending global warming catastrophe. She was from the CDC, and she suspected she might have stumbled onto a terrorist bioweapon. Her credentials and her urgency convinced enough people to push her through the phone maze, each level passing the call upward until she reached Murray. Margaret said she hadn't gone through the proper channels in the CDC because she feared leaks. Murray knew that was only partially true. The rest of the story was that Margaret wanted to be the one tracking this bizarre killer. If she went through normal channels, she feared some supervisor would take the case away from her and grab all the recognition, while Margaret was pushed to the wayside of anonymity. He'd met with her, and it took only one look at her case files, and those pictures of Charlotte Wilson and Gary Leland, to convince him that she was right. There was a new threat in town. The best part of it all was her relative obscurity. She wasn't some world authority on disease, or some Nobel Prize winner, or anyone of note. She was a very competent epidemiologist, who worked out of the Cincinnati CDC office. She wasn't even high-ranking enough to be at the main CDC center in Atlanta. Murray knew he could monopolize her time, draft her, if you will, and only a handful of people would notice her absence. He'd put people to work, searching for references to triangles or anything else that might reveal additional cases. That search turned up Blaine Tannerive, who a week earlier had contacted Toledo TV station WNWO claiming a, quote, triangle conspiracy, end quote. WNWO notes describe Mr. Tannerive as paranoid and irrational. Two days later, neighbors discovered the bodies of Tannerive and his family in their house. Tannerive was reported as being in a highly advanced state of decomposition. His wife and two daughters were also found dead, although their level of decomposition was not as advanced. Forensics showed that each of the women had been stabbed at least 20 times with a pair of scissors. WNWO then did a follow-up story on Mr. Tannery's phone call and the message of the, quote, triangle conspiracy, end quote. A murder-suicide. Tannery had no record of violence. Neither he nor his family had any history of mental illness. All the physical evidence pointed to Tannery. Investigators wrote off the case as a sudden, tragic, inexplicable onset of mental illness. The case had been closed until Murray searched for information related to triangles. Margaret's information, combined with the Tannerive case file, was all Murray needed to see. He'd taken the info to the director of the CIA, then called an emergency meeting with the president. Not a meeting with the president's chief of staff, not a meeting with the secretary of defense but a quiet little sit-down with the head honcho himself. Murray brought Montoya along for good measure. Her report proved quite convincing. The pictures really captured the president's attention. Pictures of Gary Leland's blue triangle growths. Pictures of similar, rotting growths on Charlotte Wilson's corpse. Pictures of Blaine Tannery's oozing, pitted, skeletal body, covered with that eerie green fuzz. The president gave Murray carte blanche, 
anything he wanted. Murray had the power to draft whomever he needed, but he didn't want a big team. Not yet. He had to keep things quiet, controllable. When the news of this hit the streets, the panic would be legendary. More than likely, the country would basically shut down. People wouldn't leave their homes for fear of catching the disease, and those who did leave would flood the hospitals with everything from diaper rashes to flea bites. And Murray knew that sooner or later the news would get out. He had to gather as much information as he could before the panic hit, because when it did, things were going to get very complicated. Five cases to date. Two more discovered after the presidential meeting. First, Judy Washington, age 62, found one day after Gary Leland had died, but obviously infected earlier. Dew and his partner found her pitted skeleton in a field outside the retirement community where both she and Leland lived. Her infection had already run its course. And now, the disaster that was Martin Brubaker. Five cases in 16 days. And Murray knew there were more the CIA had yet to uncover. He suspected things were only going to get worse. You have been listening to Infected, book one of the Infected Trilogy by Scott Sigler. Performed by the author. Produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.